My name is Dermot Bulger. I'm a, a novelist, a poet, and a playwright. I'm very much fascinated by my own city, but very often know very, very little about it. During the pandemic lockdown, I spent a lot of time walking around the streets of Duncondra, the streets of Glasnevin, where I live, and passing the houses of people I knew, and then discovering that I was passing houses where I didn't know people had lived. And on Moby Road, I passed the house of uh, Herbert Sims, an extraordinary city architect who designed and helped build uh, 17,000 working-class dwellings in the 16 years in which he worked for the corporation. And uh, I found it fascinating to imagine his life. It was a man who suffered greatly from the strain of his work, and in 1948 he committed suicide by stepping in front of a train in Dunleary, uh, saying that he was totally overburdened with work. And I found it fascinating the people in this in the city that we remember, and the city the people in the city whom we don't remember. So I wrote a poem to try and reclaim something of the life of uh, Herbert Sims. In doing so, as a poet, I'm aware that I'm taking liberties with his thoughts and everything else, and we will hear the poem at the end of this conversation. But in an attempt to discover the actuality of his life and his legacy, I'm honoured to be joined for this discussion by three people who know far more about the man and his work than I do. And they are Ruth McManus, who's the uh, Associate Professor of Geography in Dublin City University and is the Joint Series Editor of uh, The Making of Dublin City and uh, the Editor of the Irish Historic Towns Atlas. The second edition of her book, Dublin 1910-1940, Shaping the City and Suburbs, will be published uh, this autumn. Uh, Joseph Brady is an urban geographer and a former Dean of Arts in University College Dublin. He's the author of many books on the development of Dublin, including Dublin 1930-1950, The Emergence of the Modern City, and is a co-editor of the Making of Dublin City series of books published by Four Courts Press. And finally by Mary Bro, who is an Irish Research Council-funded PhD student in the Geography Department of Manute University. And her research examines the lived experience and how people use space in the Pier Street community. She has a special interest in our childhood home of Pierce House, a social housing complex which was built by Sims in the 1930s. So I want uh, to begin with you, Ruth, and just a sense, we, we have um, people in more recent years have become very aware of the work of Herbert Sims and of uh, the Dublin houses that Daddy crafted and the Dublin flats and, and, and dwellings he crafted. But just from the start of independence, uh, there were other houses built. So just to set the scene of Dublin house, Dublin social housing before Herbert Sims came along. Yeah, so in fact... Um Dublin Corporation, as it was then, um, started building housing relatively early in, in the scheme of things back in the 1880s. And they built a combination of flats and um, what they call cottages, small houses, usually two up, two down type houses. So they, they built a small number of schemes really before independence, relatively small number, relative to the scale of the need. Um, and in the 20s then, they started to build somewhat larger houses. I suppose Merino is probably the best 
known of of these types of um, parlor type houses they were called so they had a, a good room in them um, and they were uh, built for tenant purchase which meant that the people who came to live there had the opportunity to become homeowners over a period of time which was wonderful for the people who moved there but didn't really do a lot to address the very severe problems in the slums that they had left behind. So there was a change in policy by the late 20s. There was a recognition that the government and the city authority in Dublin, but indeed across the country, there was a general problem. Uh, There was a need to address slums specifically. So there was new legislation in the 1930s and there was a renewed emphasis on what they called slum clearance. And as part of that, in 1932, Dublin Corporation appointed its first housing architect. So somebody who was specifically employed to look at the housing schemes. And that first person was Herbert Sims. Well, what I found fascinating about the more I delved into the life of Herbert Sims and people know his houses and then they know the way he died. But I found fascinating that um, he was an outsider in so many ways. He was from England. Uh, he'd fought in the First World War, which wouldn't have been uncommon in Ireland, but was something that you wouldn't really have been able to speak about uh, to, to in certain circles. And also that he was uh, a working class uh Man, that, that that he had actually sort of, whereas a lot of architects, like a, a lot of doctors, it was it was a, a fairly privileged position that you walked into. Uh, he actually sort of uh, might have been a train driver like his father, who'd also been a shepherd, uh, except that he actually got a grant uh, for because he fought in the war and was able to slowly complete his his education. And how much of what would have been like for Herbert Sims to arrive in Dublin, and what sort of welcome would he have received? Well, it's an interesting paradox because there are different cross-currents in the city at the time and particularly in the country at the time. So absolutely, there is a, a rather tense relationship, you might say, between the new free state and the the, the the former colonial masters, if you want to call them that. But there's also a degree of pragmatism. There is also a recognition that much has to be done. And Dublin Corporation, for all of its nationalistic um, overtones and all of the the, 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 the uh, paraphernalia of that, is very happy to look elsewhere to find ways of doing things. So that they look to the UK for their models, they look to the UK for their um, their ideas. And so somebody like Sims coming into Dublin would have come into a community that where they they pretty well knew the same kind of things. These were coming from these were cut from the same kind of cloth. Really, uh, he'd have been part of the developing um, new towns idea. He'd been part of the Garden City movement. He'd have taken on board that. So I just I reckon he'd have found the same kind of contradictions that he'd have found that you you didn't talk much about your British service. At the same time, I reckon that within the corporation itself there would be recognition that there was a job to be done. And also he came in in the way that many people come into work today. He came into a series of short-term contracts. I mean, there was never any great sense that here is the guy coming in with you know, an architectural qualification and he's getting this job and he's going to become the housing architect. He comes in as a temporary architect on a six-month contract. That contract is renewed for another six months. It's renewed for another six months. It's renewed for another six months. 
until eventually they come to the view, listen, we can't keep going and doing this sort of thing. And they advertise the post and they make him, they make him apply for his own job. So he gets in bit by bit, I think, as many people did and as many people continue to do. And there was, he wasn't obviously the sole architect in the uh, city uh, route. Uh, so there, there was a, a Hovis Tennyson O'Rourke, who was a more senior architect. Uh, and was there a tension between these two men or, uh, as to their roles and as to sort of their, 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 in, in the hierarchy of the city? Yeah, <clears throat> it's interesting because um, the city architect would have been responsible for housing schemes up until 1932. And uh, Horace O'Rourke, when he was assistant uh, city architect, had actually argued that they needed a specific post uh, to look after housing. But I'm not entirely sure <clears throat> how delighted he would have been that the city architect, when he was employed, was sort of pretty much independent of him and, and did his own thing. You get a sense of this when you look at the minutes of the 1938 tribunal into the governance of the city of Dublin. And Sims comes in as the representative of the corporation talking about housing and he, he's talking about housing density and he's talking about new towns. He's a big proponent of new towns. And there's a telling statement where it says the, the average density in corporation schemes is 11 houses per acre. The city architect has no role in determining the density of housing schemes. And I think that telling um, statement very much fits into what Ruth has just said, is that there was a difference. They also occupied different space. So the city architect was found down in Cork Street, whereas Sims had his place on top of a shop in Parliament Street. So I reckon they'd have had interesting conversations, that might be the way to put it. And you say that he's a proponent of new towns, but also he was a great proponent of the notion of uh, building within the city itself and of decanting existing populations. The idea is that you actually you knock down something and you build a new building beside it and then you move people from the uh, adjoining tenements into it. And so you kept that community, which, which by the time he was... Um, by the time he died, there was being pushed more and more towards big suburbs like Ballyferm and everything else. But Mary, to come to you, your family, your grandmother was one of the first people to move into yes, a Sims my, house. Like Sims was built, the blocks were built in different stages. And as you said, he decanted from the cottages below into these. So what's interesting about his, if you lived in the cottage and you rented the bottom room and somebody rented the top room over you, when you got moved into the flats, you were moved in that way. So Mrs. Byrne lived over my granny because Mrs. Byrne lived over my granny in the cottages. So he kept a whole community together um, for, for that sake. So you have this whole community that had lived in the so, um, slums or in the small cottages. So when, when your grandmother moved physically, how far did she move? Very, very little distance. Mm -hmm. They could put the stuff in the wheelbarrow, the small bit mm -hmm. they had, yeah. and actually bring it up. The difficulty was getting up the stairs mm -hmm. um, in the flats because now they had actual stairs. But they would have had very little furniture at that time. Mm -hmm. So what they had would come with it. But the distance was was no, was literally no distance. I'm trying to think probably from here to across the road to Stevens mm -hmm. Green or the middle of Stevens mm -hmm. Green. But he literally worked on decanting people exactly as they were housed in the um, cottages or in the 
the slum blocks. I, the only time you would see a difference is in, in the bigger area of the flats was if a family didn't get on, yeah. they'd request to be separated. Yeah. So even in the flats, there's kind of smaller communities and you'd have one, one the same name, uh -huh. but at different ends of the area. <laughs> and even now, this is like 90 years on, yeah. you would still, the family don't even know why they feuded like mm -hmm. 90 years ago, mm -hmm. but he did that. He, he kept yeah. the family, which kept a continuity in, in the family. So essentially a lot of my habits would have become from um, my mom and granny because they would have helped the neighbors. Yeah. So it was passed on to my mom, which then passed on to me. And we just did it automatically. We had no idea why we were doing it. It was mm. because it was already a tradition ingrained in the community. The house that I passed, I wrote my poem outside. Well, it was a long poem, so I, I would have died of hypothermia if I'd written the entire <laughs> poem there. But I began my poem outside. It uh, was built by uh, Linzel, who was a son-in-law of Alexander Strain. And these are very famous names in Dublin house building. And still, you know, you pick up the property section of the Irish Times, you'll have a, it's an Alexander Strain house. But there was a sense that they'd put their stamp on things and that the names, people were very proud to with names. When did you first hear the name, uh, Mary, of Herbert Sims? Uh, uh, was family aware of even who the builder was no, or who designed no, it No, we weren't. Like, I probably would have, I was lucky enough to go back into university about 10 years ago. And as part of my project, that was where I wanted to look at where I grew up in, in the inner city. So I, it was the first time I heard Sims 10 years ago. We, well, I don't believe we were aware that we lived in an art deco building. Mm -hmm. But I think it's actually uh, what has preserving the community now yeah. because it is um, list, a listed building. Instead of everybody being shipped out because it needs to be renovated, they're saving part of the building. So a lot of the community is going to be able to remain in in the inner city and it's it because of his foresight of of making it that special but yeah no i didn't i didn't know i grew up in it but it's probably i in, in reflection think why i have a liking for nice things because yeah. i grew up in a building that was was pretty and because he built it in the city he built it right beside the library so we already had amenities right around us with the library with tara street bats we had what we call the dead museum the animal museum yeah. so we spent i spent my childhood in buildings like this with high ceilings because of the 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 luxury of being able to live in the inner city yeah. and the the stuff was there the 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 whole city was already built shops were around like recently in my research i've gotten to talk to people about smell yeah. and sounds of the city and it's just glorious like they would have walked past uh, shops that made soap mm -hmm. that made toffee uh, sewing uh, factories and then there's the other ones which is uh, the, the abattoirs yeah. were also in the city so sometimes they have the clash of Boland's Bakery and the abattoir hitting them in their nostrils at one time but the city was alive for us as, as people. You described that so so vividly in that sense of of, of an ongoing community that that, that had lived there for centuries, really. Uh, and but then the uh, Sims was also involved in the planning of of Cabra West and the planning, which was actually quite close to city and was uh, was hastened by the Northrand 
bombings. It was hurried on. But and and Crumlin and I think Ben Ben and Bean's family moved to Crumlin. I think it was Bean who said there's no suburbia. There's only Siberia. Yeah. And uh, but was it very different then in the, the work that he did in those suburbs? Well, the, the what he did was he brought his experience of um, house building, which he which. As Ruth has said, you know, the corporation had made some pretty good but rather tentative um, steps at building until they built Marino. Mm-hmm. And Marino was regarded as very much as the, the template for it. So he'd have brought that, he'd have had that template. Yeah. But unfortunately, one of the difficulties he had was that such was the demand and such was the pressure mm-hmm. that a lot of the design values which were incorporated into Marino had mm-hmm. to be watered down somewhat mm-hmm. in the much larger developments mm-hmm. of, of, um, of Crumlin and, and uh, Drimna and so on. So he'd have, been, he'd have known what he wanted to do, mm-hmm. and, um, but he would have been constrained in what he could have done in that he had to build more, he had to build faster. Um, and he built well, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine that he would have wanted to bring the same kind of design that he was able to bring to his apartments and that he had seen into Marino, into these much larger estates. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the things that he spoke about, he, he happened to give a speech uh, just before he took up his appointment um, to the municipal engineers. And he talked about his vision. You know, he was a firm believer in new towns. He was he, he believed in providing amenities. And I, I'm sure it must have been endlessly frustrating for, for, for him and his team uh, that corporation never had enough money. So it was always housing first. And, you know, the, 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 the schools and the shops and everything else will come later. And it's almost like you have two competing ideologies because what Mary has described in the city centre um, you know, and keeping community together was almost the opposite of what ended up happening inevitably when people were moved out to new suburban locations where there was this sense of dislocation. It took time for a community to form where they didn't have amenities for people. A lot of people wanted to go back home to town or used to go into town every day. Yeah. Um, and there was a great deal of tension within Dublin Corporation itself. Again, coming back to the, re- the report of this 1938 tribunal, you find one of the statements made saying that there's a lot going on here, but it's not coordinated. Mm-hmm. And there isn't this sense of, you know, would you get your act together, lads? Mm-hmm. So the idea of decanting people, in fact, to give the corporation their due, was an old idea. I mean, they had done that for, with their very first schemes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in one of the public inquiries into a housing scheme, which eventually um, Sims built in uh, the... the in um, there beside Stevens Green, they, uh, they, they, they talked about a non-migratory population mm-hmm. living in the slums. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, you couldn't move them. Yeah. So th- there was all of that. And so there are, there, these tensions would have been evident, and that is probably the manifestation, the beginnings of the kind of pressure under which Sims found himself working. He had the ideas that he wanted to build. Mm-hmm. He had the kinds of environments that he wanted to build, mm-hmm. and yet he had the pressure. Yeah. to build more and more. And the, the world, obviously, parallel to build to um, Sims, 
building or his team building these working class homes. There were also, as, as I mentioned, Alexander Strain and Lizelle, who was his son-in-law, and other family members. It was, it was quite a big sort of uh, family gathering of people uh, who had the, the Association of Dublin House Builders who had their smoking dinners every year in the Dolphin Hotel and, and who catered for uh, a, a, a growing middle class, relatively affluent clientele and build particular things and was there tension between these groups was there any in connection would, would, would they have even, even would the worlds have touched I think that their worlds did touch because Dublin was still a pretty small place and, yeah. you know you bump into people you, you, people knew each other mm. but also um People in that world, um, in, in, the, in the construction world, in the building world, knew each other. One thing that people often forget is that a lot of corporation housing was built by some of the great builders. So you have Crampton, you have Kenny, and, and many of the other big names that are still used to sell the private houses. Uh, they were actually also heavily involved. In fact, a lot of their bread and butter work was building corporation schemes. In fact, you could say that they would not have survived yeah. Uh, were it not for the contracts that they got from the city. And in the 1950s, in the hungry 1950s, yeah. it was the refurbishment of corporation houses which kept these firms in business. Mm. So they knew well. And anyway, didn't the corporation encourage private building in all sorts of different ways? There were all kinds of incentives given to private builders because the whole, the whole aim was to build houses. Mm-hmm. And any way that you could encourage anybody to build any house anywhere mm-hmm. was enthusiastically adopted. Mm-hmm. So private builders did pretty well okay out of it. And it was, as you say, about encouraging housing. I, I, I live in Duncondra, as I mentioned, and uh, I live in a house a house built by the corporation in the 1920s. And as you say, they were they were for porches. It was quite interesting that there was, um, I, I live, like, the house four doors down from me was the rent office. It was slightly bigger. It was they got a, cheap, a cheaper thing, and uh, people. It was there, there was no uh, inflation, so there was no there was no. It was the same like seven and six or whatever that that they were paying, and uh, I, I still remember uh, when I moved in force that on a Friday evening, like a secure core van would come to take away the actual um, the rent, which was this minuscule sum of money that because almost the house was paid off at that stage, and then across the road a taxi would arrive, and the taxi a guy. The corporation will, will get out with massive sums of money to pay all the fellas walking in the park. <laughs> so it was, it was a strange contradiction. But what was interesting was that um, th- there was a sense of actually mixed housing being encouraged there because when as you moved up from I was on I live on Ferguson Road and there's Walsh Road and that's what, part of a tri- little triangle of working class. Uh, houses, and then you move on to Home Farm Road and on to uh, Griffith Avenue, and and you you have the houses change every like ten twenty houses, and there are small private uh, groups set up to build houses. So there was a sense of actual integrating housing, uh, which sort of vanished very quickly uh, later on. Well, yeah, it's, it's it's quite an interesting thing, I suppose. The corporation really needed to build houses, and it was it, it was stymied in terms of what it could build with the finances that were available at the time. So in the 20s, they started this idea of they reserved areas at the edges of the schemes that were made available then for others to build upon. And that's what you're describing at Trumcondra, which is probably where it's at its most extreme because the north side of Home Farm Road is built by by all sorts of private ventures and these public utility societies, which are a form of uh, sort of like a co-op, really. Um, And uh, the corporation actually continued that policy from 
um, right through from Marino, right through, I think Joe found examples of it right through into the 1950s, did you? In further into the 1970s, in fact, the, the building of Eaton Moor and uh, Kilmore and all the rest of it still involved the same kind of making sites available, actually building houses for sale. So the, you, know, you find Dublin Corporation building houses for private sale, building houses for rent. Mm. It's anything to do to try and get people to do so. And the interesting paradox in the Drumcondra scheme of which you speak is that everybody in that scheme was a homeowner, was going to be a homeowner, yeah. because they were all tenant, they were either tenant purchase or they were private. Mm-hmm. It's only when Sims really starts to build and he really gets into it that you see the shift to rental. Mm-hmm. And that's the big change that happens after 1932, after the 1932 Housing Act, is that the, the state can finally afford, it believes, to build houses for the working classes mm-hmm. who can't afford yeah. to buy their house. Because mm-hmm. up to that point, there just wasn't any money. The state had no money. It had borrowed pretty well everything that it could borrow. Uh, there was nobody really lending it anything. And it's really, it's an interesting conjunction of the interests of Fianna Fáil and Common and Gale mm-hmm. and everybody else, that they all agree on the same thing. It, they would, there would have been very few things I'd have thought they agreed on in 1932. Mm-hmm. But they all agree with the fact that the time has come to deal with the slums, to deal with the inner city, to deal with the area that they hadn't been able to do so. And this is where Sims gets his chance. And this is where your your family uh, yeah. begin the involvement with, with Pierce House. And when you began to research Pierce House and, and, and just how the communities had grown there and how generations had grown there, were there surprising things you, you discovered about this little world that Sims helped to create? Part, well, part of it was, well, like, I mean, the, I think his design of the flats is, is incredible because even how when you, when you enter, you can go under an arch straight away and you only have to come out a little bit. So you never got wet if it was raining. So simple things like that kept you, um, you know, just made your life easier. He also had, you mentioned the person, the caretaker. Yeah. All, each of the um, areas had a caretaker. So th- it was always kept pristine. Of it, and what fascinated me was I don't know if you know Pierce House, but in the middle of Pierce House there's a playground, and that was part of the build as well. Now part of it was also to take the slum children off the streets, but it was what you had was um, social reforms, uh, women come in there and mind the kids. So you had hundreds of children in there, where it allowed then usually the mother to go do a few hours work, because the windows back on to the playground, so there was massive passive supervision. So he provided, not only was the women in the playground, but this window allowed everybody, nearly 200 flats, to actually look in on the children. So we were constantly watched, we were constantly passively supervised, wondered why we didn't get away with anything. And it was partly that was, <laughs> that was the design of how that was. So I, I, was fas- yeah, I was fascinated and just, I was saddened when I did the research to find out Less than ten years after, say, my par- grandparents moved in, he he uh, had left the world. That was kind of sad because I don't know if he realised what he's given to us. Get a bit emotional <laughs> because without him, a lot of us wouldn't have had the privilege of living in the city and and developing, grown grown from that. And I'm lucky enough; some of my relatives still live in 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 the city. But yeah, when you really look at it, how he even organised the washing lines, he catered for everything. 
because like washing machines were like those uh, winders and then they had to be hung out and the, even to measuring how high the poles were so the sheets didn't hit the ground because the new poles that went in aren't tall enough and it's only when they go in did you realise what he had put in in the first place. So he, he, he provided a total playground for the women. I'm, I'm going to say the women because the men kind of in general went out to work and back, but the women of the area because he created a space because you had to go in one entrance and out the other. You, you had called accidental bumpability all the time. You could not get away with not seeing your neighbours. So you learned very fast how to mix, how to be with people. And I think he, that was by design because even the second... There's two, Pierce, Pierce House is divided into kind of two sections and even the back is divided again. So there was a whole group of people that you were going to meet on a constantly daily basis. And I think he designed that. And he has what they call, um, we call them the one bedrooms at the side. And they were specifically designed for um, the single person who were going to be living in, in the tenements. Then he had the, the family houses. And because the way everybody was decanted in, you had a mixture of income. You had a sergeant who was in there rearing his, his children. You had my grandparents who, because she got this house, was actually able to take three of her children out of an orphanage. They had been taken off her because the conditions she was living in were, were quite bad. So I, I, I'm still exploring his design, but I think he, he was very clever. He looked after us. We were well, passively supervised my whole childhood. That's a fascinating insight into the actuality of living in a Sims house. And do you think Vuta is part of this, of his uh, sympathy for uh, actually, and also his, his understanding of how a working class community just functions? Does that come from his background or does that come from the fact that he did a, a lot of research uh, in uh, social public housing trends in Rotterdam and places in Holland and, and so he, he, he looked outside Ireland as well to see what, what the best trends were at the period? Yeah, I think it's probably a combination of both. Certainly, he, I think he probably could get closer to to, to the lived experience because he didn't come from very dissimilar background himself. And I, I also, there, there were others on the corporation, uh, Tom Kelly earlier, who was, who was the chairman of the, the, the housing committee, who had grown up in a tenement and was able to say, look, you can't be sending people off out uh, to the suburbs if they need to be close to their place of work. You know, just the simple things that maybe other people didn't quite get because for all that they were uh, very favorably disposed towards providing housing, it wasn't their people. They were, they were kind of um, not, not exactly looking down, but they, they couldn't quite empathize fully. So, so Sims would have had that. He would have kind of got it. Um, but also then, in addition to that sort of uh, his own experience growing up, he also had studied and indeed very early in his career with the corporation, um, he had he had gone on, uh, on a study trip to the UK first, and we know certainly architectural historians will also say that he 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 got inspired by uh, uh, continental Europe too, particularly the Dutch housing. So 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 it's this combination of influences, I think, and and a really a really strong sense of duty and care towards the people he was providing for. And. I think it's important to, to remember that despite the fact that Ireland might have been quite insular in many respects, 
they were plugged into this European idea about how you provided um, public housing. So you will find, for example, when you're talking about Sims, you'll find that people are making reference to what he has seen in Vienna, what, 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 the, what they've done there, what they've done here. They do go on field trips. They do go and they look. They go and they look at what's being built elsewhere. They go to London. They look at what's being built by London County Council. They go and all the rest of it. So they are open in a way which perhaps other parts of Irish society are not yeah. at this time to getting ideas. But also to return to an earlier point uh, about, about Sims being remembered, I think one of the great things about your poem is the way that you have evoked the man because he was largely forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, the... He would not have been a name that would have cropped um, cropped up when there was any discussion about the development of Dublin and all the rest of it. There might have been reference to HTO work because he did the civic survey. Mm-hmm. But Sims had largely slipped yeah. from um, from public memory. And I think it's great that now, at last, you know, we're getting to the point of where we're really remembering somebody who made an incredible contribution mm-hmm. and indeed paid a terrible price for it. Mm-hmm. I actually had a had an email uh, last week from somebody who had worked in a, a similar role to, to that which Sim occupied in, in Dublin Corporation since retired. But he said that um, he, he and, and some others had ho- hoped that uh, a housing scheme would be named yeah. for Sims and he wondered why it had never happened yet and you know, there seemed to be a preference for saints' names and all sorts in the past. And um, he wondered, was it something to do with Sims being English, being a bit of an outsider, never quite being fully accepted? I don't know. But um, I hope that maybe uh, the city council as it is now will find it in its power to to give, at least honour him with with a name. I think, obviously, he, he, he should be honoured. And, and the poem is an attempt in a small way, as a poet got taught to honour him. But... I think, again, he's not the sort of person that we honour him. And I think I, I love in my favourite line in Ulysses is in the cabman shelter and Bloom and Stephen Dedalus are there and they, they are companionably agreeing to disagree on everything. But Bloom says that the revolution must come on the due installments plan. And for me, I always think that the people who build the country are the people who found form, form credit unions, are the people who do those sort of simple, simple tasks with, the, with knit a community together, um, which is unnoticed. And I, I think that is Sims is among them. But um, to, to come to you, Joe, do, do you think that by the time he uh, takes his own life, that the game is up for him in the sense that he's been building small, beautiful uh, Art Deco complexes in the inner city. That, but that course, and suddenly the, 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 the population explosion is such that even though there's massive emigration or the demand for housing is such that basically uh, the councillors just want cheaper and cheaper, more and more housing at a cheaper cost and those sprawling suburbs begin to sort of, uh, be, that, that he becomes a bit overruled in terms of what he wants to do. Well, I think he, by the time he's come to the end of his life, a whole series of events have conspired against him. Firstly, there is, as you say, the fact that there is this continuing migration into the city. So the problem continues to grow, even though the building programme has accelerated and there is more and more housing being built. But the Second World War has a huge impact as well, because suddenly there are no building materials. 
they're, they're able, Dublin Corporation is able to continue with some building. So some building goes on during the, the, the 1940s. But all they can do is plan for the future. Mm-hmm. And he can see the problem getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He's also losing his staff. So he has got a bigger and bigger problem. He's got fewer and fewer staff. He can plan, but he can't build. Mm-hmm. So you can see that maybe in the late 1930s that they were beginning to get a handle on it. You know, we're building 3,000 houses a year, 4,000 houses a year. You know, we have plans to build. Suddenly it stops, but the problem doesn't stop. So by 1940s, by the end of the Second World War, by 1945, 1946, they're beginning to think that they can move forward. But he's got even less resources than he had before. So I can well understand the man going home and saying, you know, what can I do? You know, how am I going to do this? And uh, you can get that sense of the build of the problem. And in, in, in my poem, I, I, I link this a bit to his war experiences, but, but, but this is more speculation on my part in that uh, post-traumatic stress wasn't really understood. And, and, and people, so he, he has a nervous breakdown 15 years before he actually dies. So I sort of wonder how much is he carrying inside of memories of that war period that, that, that sort of uh, um, helped to create that mood where he just feels that there's, uh, he obviously feels an overwhelming sense of, he also feels that sense you mentioned of duty and care, that it isn't that, 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 that he actually, he apologizes for taking his own life, but he's just totally swamped. And, and do you think how much of that is what Joe says of the, just the lack of materials, the lack of resources, and how much do you think is his own life just past catching up with him? Or is that a, an impossible question to answer? I don't think we'll ever know fully, but you can only empathize with how hopeless he must have felt. He he had been tr- uh, struggling for so long to try and do his best, and no matter what he did, it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, it must have been, he, he must have just felt so desperate and so hopeless at the end. It's, it, it just it seems an, an extraordinarily sad death. It really, really does. Well, not, very few deaths are happy, but this particularly, because he, he was still a relatively young man, but just been overwhelmed. He's, he had the notion that when he built, and he built really, really well, and, and he said, I think some of the, a, a good block of flats should last for 200 years. It should be like a great building. But, but I mean, as somebody who's, Family has a number of generations have been associated with with, with Pierce House. I mean, are they twenty fourth century houses? Are they, I mean, because occasionally you have people who want to knock down and rebuild them. I mean, are, is is a Sims flat still um, suitable for a family in the twenty fourth century? Um, well, I'm going to because the refurbishments that are going to happen yeah. is the back is and they're going to knock in. They yeah. were smaller, but at the time people were coming from yeah. a one bed, a one room, yeah. and now they were going into a two room with a bathroom mm-hmm. and a to- their own toilet, which is an amazing back then. So, but yes, because what they're talking about now is is knocking them into each other, so yeah. they're making the spaces yeah. um, bigger. But reality, what happened was that there was disinvestment in most of social housing. But like I, I believe in it, it's it's 
out there that if a lot of there was 7.5 million done put into Pierce House mm-hmm. to make it look pretty yeah but the damp wasn't sorted the stuff that could have been and like Sims would have said that you need to maintain stuff yeah. um so yes I believe his these these blocks of flats would have lasted if they had got the actual maintenance that was needed because as, as we said earlier on the caretaker yeah. we grew up with a caretaker and then the caretaker was be- shared between two yeah. blocks of flats then it was be shared between the whole of Dublin mm-hmm. so you the maintenance was was actually what led a lot of the Pierce house down but yes his, his it's structure it's it sounds like I mean from just even trying to put a nail in the wall as a child yeah. was was like it was it's a solid piece yeah. of Thing and they did now. In fairness to Dublin Corporation, they did put in uh, central heating mm-hmm. and showers mm-hmm. and um, weather glazed windows. But it was more the damp roofing yeah. needed to go on because it would have been when they were built the ninety odd years ago, mm-hmm. um, slightly different material. But yes, and I'm delighted that Pierce House is going to be saved. Yeah. So we will still have that structure, and we will have. I think it's going to be fifty eight percent of the community get to stay yeah. because they're going to be knocked into each other. Yeah. But yes, I do so believe. So it has yeah. been it has been renewed and and is, is continuing. Yeah, but, and this is because this time the investment is actually in the structure of it yeah. and getting clearing the 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 stuff that needed to be cared for yeah. a while back. But yes, I do believe is, yeah. and I would be ashamed to take it out of the city. Mm-hmm. Oh, it would. Even when the fabric is not retained, you can still see that his um, his buildings are still in, are still structurally sound. So the reconfiguration of St. Mary's Mansions, for example, in Jean McDermott Street, mm. is a, a manifestation of what you can do, even if you don't maintain the, the outer skin, the outer fabric of the, the building, you can still produce 21st century homes for people using the basic structure the Sims put in place. Yeah. You know, they were well built. Mm-hmm. Mind you, they were all well built. I mean, is it not remarkable that we're talking about houses, which in the case of the one that you, you live in is coming up on its 100th anniversary and they, 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 were, they were built. I don't think that there was an expectation that 100 years from the time that they were built that they'd be sound as a pound or sound as a euro and be greatly sought after by people as places to live. Well, I, I, my, my, a couple of years ago, my son's 21st was occurring when I was getting a little small bit of work done and I needed a little bit of wall taken out and I came home to find four workmen in tears with 15 broken drill bits having to put something into the wall because they, 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 they were solid houses. I was a friend of the poet Patrick Galvin, who was a very interesting Cork poet. He wrote a poem called James Connolly, and James Connolly entered mainstream folk music as being a traditional anonymous song. And I said, you've achieved the ultimate in fame, which is to be anonymous, in that you create something that just goes out into the world. And as we go around Dublin, Sims has the same sort of fame, in that he is anonymous uh, throughout the city. Uh, I mean, his, his works include uh, St. Albans House and the, the Chancery uh, Place Flats and uh, Henrietta House and uh, Countess Markovich House and Pierce House, which I mentioned, and, and uh, all of them. Is there, just to finish up with, with and, and thank you all for your time and thank you all for 
enlightened me on my former neighbor whose house I, I passed in a dark night during the pandemic. But it, it was one house or one development by Sims that you actually have a special place for in, in your hearts. Well, I, I think for you, it well, would, I think would be Pierce House, house. <laughs> is definitely going to, to be mine. But to go back to how Sims also builds stuff, yeah. I have a connection to all his buildings because when they go in, yeah. his map was quite the same. So there's something when I stand in the flats and look up the balconies that I feel at home mm -hmm. and I can see myself when I'm in Oliver Bond doing a lot of the similar things. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of our culture is the same because he had set out the way he set them both out mm -hmm. that will overlap. But yes, no, if, if when it comes to Sims, Pierce House is obviously where my heart is. Mm -hmm. uh, is it one building that stands out for you, Ruth? My favourite is, is Chancery Place. It's one of his smallest schemes, but it's it's perfectly formed. Uh, it's right beside the forecourts. And I think there was a bit of controversy at the time that we should be building some sort of a magnificent building there. But in fact, I think uh, nothing could be more perfect than his beautiful flats for the common man, if you like, and woman. Oh, she stole my idea. It is also that. I think that is, the, that is for me, mm -hmm. the perfect scheme. Yeah. It is self-contained it sits well upon its site it has that lovely park in front of it yeah. it has that welcoming arch mm -hmm. and out front in everything it's it had what was once the waybridge for the the market in front but built as if it was part of the scheme mm -hmm. and ruth is, is right they when they came to build the the scheme in ormond um the ormond market scheme the whole idea was to leave that site vacant mm -hmm. for some grander building something that would speak more of the the forecourts. Mm -hmm. I think it speaks very well to the forecourts. I think it does. It speaks for the common man. And I think Sims had that uh, relationship with the people he built for, with that many builders, that many developers and architects don't have. And it's great that that, that, that he's been honoured. And it's lovely to be here in uh, Mali uh, talking about him and uh, to be joined by uh, Ruth McManus, by Joseph Brady, by Mary Bro. And I want to thank you all for enlightening a man who, who like uh, A.A. Millen's great creation, is a bearer of, ve of very little brain. Uh, and then we're going to finish with uh, a reading of my poem in memory of George Herbert Sims, The Corporation Housing Architect. The Corporation Housing Architect, in memory of Herbert George Sims, 1898-1948. In these lockdown nights of a silent pandemic, at Halloween, when the dead supposedly walk in remnants of shrouds and of winding sheets, I find myself alone opposite your former house. Tonight, not even living children have come forth to race beneath mature trees on St. Moby Road, screaming behind masks and feigning fright at the sight of fake skeletal hands reaching up from the lawns of these desirable 1930s properties bedecked in the mock paraphernalia of horror. But even if the ghosts of everyone who once resided on this street were to crowd out onto the pavement to reenact daily rituals from their past existences, I doubt if I would spot your unobtrusive presence among that throng. You were always so overlooked that it took hours before anyone found your body 
lying on dark train tracks, alive but so mutilated they amputated your arm when trying to save you. You stamped an indelible imprint on Dublin City, but I rarely remembered on this or any street. So allow me to pause a moment outside the door you departed from on your final morning alive, burdened by so much unfinished work to be done, so many dwellings to design, yet acutely aware that they would never be enough to house the poor and ease Dublin's relentlessly unsolvable problems. That responsibility and weight besieges your mind, along with your own ghosts. Skeletal arms reach up from the mud of no man's land, trying to grab you, furious at the unfairness of how a train driver's son used his ex-serviceman's grant to study architecture while their mutilated corpses still lie there unfound. You were the sole working-class diploma student there, only allowed to mix with social betters because you'd seen shell-shocked boys screaming with amputated limbs. You became a true rarity, an architect who understood the reality rather than the theory of cramped housing, of shared outdoor toilets, of stampeding famished buys cascading down bare staircases in tenement buildings. Nothing was theoretical for you in conferences to plan layout densities of estates in Cabra West or Crumlin. Cumberland Street flats with a penny dinner hall. The four-story blocks in Cook Street with hipped roofs where parapets and balconies garlanded the courtyards. Councillors always denouncing any excess cost. Cartels of subcontractors conspiring to keep bids high. Rings of timber merchants. Coteries of cement importers. The chief city architect never replaced after he retired because the corporation had you, a useful pack mule, to ply with additional work. 17,000 dwellings designed and built in 16 years. 17,000 working class families given turnkey homes with designs influenced by radical public housing trends in Rotterdam. Yet still, you could never garner sufficient political backing to alleviate slum conditions witnessed on your commute from this modernist Moby Road house built by Linzel, a speculator as shrewd as his mentor, Alexandra Strain. These builders prospered by focusing on the social caste that could afford the prestigious baubles of stained glass and bay windows displaying parlours kept for visitors. During their annual smoking dinner in the Dolphin Hotel, I wonder what such esteemed pillars of the Association of Dublin House Builders made of you, crippled by stress at trying to build your parallel city for the dispossessed. A foreigner in a city so scared of innovation or dissent that this street you lived on underwent a name change amid protests about it being called after a Protestant dean. It is unsurprising 
that no black hair bears your name, that few remember. Our public acts of remembrance rarely commemorate walk-a-day citizens who construct tangible legacies measurable in bricks and lime mortar. So let me recall the last morning you opened this gate, the explanatory note already folded in your pocket. You cast a final look at St. Moby's Road before driving across the city you did more than anyone to shape. Your mind plagued by all the tasks still to be done, delays on designated sites needing to be built on, families on waiting lists desperate for new homes, harassed faces of your depleted, overwhelmed staff, vacancies left unfulfilled, innumerable sets of plans constantly seeming to multiply piled up on your desk. Paymasters had blocked your plans for more inner-city blocks of flats that families from adjacent tenements could be decanted into, leaving communities intact. No more curved angles or such expressionist finesse as befitted corporation flats named after a countess. No more over-sailing eaves in the Art Deco complexes you fantasized about, sharing a bed with four brothers. Instead, councillors insatiably demand the quick fix of soulless sprawls of cheaply prefabricated estates. As you drive, you recall awaiting a whistle in a trench. Three decades on, the blast of bombs still resonate. Your memories muddle amid the dead of no man's land. You see a guard signal to your father to release the brake of his huge hissing train, besieged by steam and smoke on your ninth birthday when he let you ride in his cab, the stoker shoveling coal as if that heaving locomotive was a beast to be fed. This was the life you might have led had you not endured a war unmentionable in Dublin that left you scarred by horrors never revealed to anyone. Trying to shake those wartime blasts from your head, you recall your father one night during your childhood described the damp misery of his first job as a shepherd. You remember the sneers of fellow university students at your sole pair of dilapidated boots worn for three years. You feel guilty about the letters needing urgent replies in the office you drive past en route to Dunleary. There you wander amid crowds, a condemned man on day release, knowing the cell door will slam again, knowing that if you battle for 16 more years to erect thousands of new homes, it still won't be enough. It has been four weeks since you last properly slept, the black dog at your shoulder refusing any respite, the beast who padded at your heels into an asylum and pretended to retreat when fended off by tablets you ceased taking when they interfered with your walk. But this morning, you finally ordered your thoughts, set out the helpless position, the impossible weight as clearly as in the days when, as a young draftsman, 
you crafted every detail of your first architectural plan, discovering how a sanctuary existed in the parameters of blank sheets where you felt indubitably in command of the perspective, making every angle and aspect clear. I cannot stand it any longer. My brain is too tired to walk. It has not had a rest for 20 years except in heavy sleep, always on the go like a dynamo, and still more work is piled on me. I am sorry to cause bother, but I think I am going slowly mad. You read your last words again, seated alone in your car, as dusk obscures the train tracks on Cold Key Bridge. Whiskey sours your stomach, but you take a final swig before opening the car door to walk over and observe the neat symmetry of sleepers laid by railway workers. Studying the lights from the ongoing train, you suddenly feel like a boy again, waiting for your father to come, driving his engine, the carriages filled with fallen men at top speed in his haste to get home to Kentish Town. Patiently, you await him by that unlit stretch of track, choosing your moment to step forth into the unknown. This edition of Writer Presents was researched and presented by Dermot Balger and produced by Ian Dunphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly with Ian Dunphy on sound. Writer Presents is produced with the support of the Arts Council on Corla Allian. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.